May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be made acceptable to you, my rock and my redeemer. Well, good morning, all. This week's gospel reading takes us to the book of Luke. So if you have a Bible, we'll be in the 18th chapter, verses 9 to 14. Before we dive into the parable in the reading, I want to kind of address the context. If we briefly turn back to the 11th verse of Luke in the 17th chapter, we find Jesus and company on the move. He is traveling to Jerusalem. But he was traveling, as Luke writes, passing along between Samaria and Galilee. When most people hear those two places, the former has a pretty well-known parable attached to it, and the latter is kind of thought of as Jesus' home turf. But if you only thought about it that way, you would actually miss a pretty important point that relates to this week and to this portion of the scripture. In Israel at this time, you had almost a caste system. People from the city centers were generally more educated and more fluent, while the inhabitants of the rural areas were, by and large, either living off the land or making away with day, day laboring. They may have possessed some basic literacy, but they were not as religiously observant or finicky as the city dwellers. These were called the Amharets, the people of the land. You may think of them kind of as the country bumpkins. They were looked down upon by the people in Jerusalem. Galilee, in particular, had only recently been Judaized and was called in Hebrew Hagalil Hagoyim, Galilee of the nations, or the Gentiles. They were still within the boundaries of the camp in Galilee, so to speak, but just barely. Then you had the Samaritans. These were considered enemies. They were impure. They were mixed. Their religion was a little bit Jewish, a little bit pagan. They were definitely outside the boundaries. So to pass Jerusalem, Jesus is taking a path that most Jews probably would not have been comfortable with. And I think he was being delivered in that choice. If we move into verse 9, Luke writes, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now in the previous chapter in verse 20, it tells us that the people he was preaching to, it says he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come we can logically connect that the individuals in verse 9 were indeed the Pharisees. But even if they weren't just the Pharisees, they were in the crowd listening, and they would sure have felt themselves included when verse 10 states, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Here Jesus is giving two types of individuals for comparison. A Pharisee, the most observant, rigorous, strict of the the many Jewish groups in the Second Temple period, and then contrasting him with a telon, a tax collector, considered the worst of the Jewish groups in the period because not only did they cooperate with the foreign occupiers of Judah, but they often collected more than what they were supposed to, and they were seldomly religious observant. Now, most of us who are familiar with the Bible know how this parable continues. On one hand, you have the um, less-than-humble Pharisee, You can almost kind of picture a smug look on his face when he prays. Thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The air around him feels like it just reeks of self-assurance and self-righteousness. Then you have the tax collector standing there. 
glancing downward, fully feeling and living out his shame and guilt. As he, in verse 13, he beats his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The parable ends with Jesus telling the audience in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And we walk away with this notion that we shouldn't be self-righteous or judgmental like that hypocritical Pharisee. That's the main thrust of the idea and maybe the main point, no question, and he's an example of faith for many. But I would like to focus on another feature in the parable that often gets overlooked, the mindset of the tax collector. You see, when I've heard this, I've always pictured the parable played out like, here these two men are praying, and the Pharisee lifts his arm for emphasis. He really wants to make that distance and that distinction between himself and the tax collector. And if we unpack verse 13 and we zoom into the Greek, it literally says, De telones makrotin hestos, the tax collector standing far away. He wasn't to the corner, it wasn't a smidge, he wasn't over there a nudge, he was completely removed away from the Pharisee. The ESV gets it right. But then the verse continues, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. The ESV isn't 100% literal here. The verse literally says he wasn't willing to lift his eyes. It isn't simply that he did not want to look up at God, but in his state, he either felt unworthy or incapable of doing so. Whatever raw emotion he was being racked with, it stopped him from being able to look towards his Lord. We can see that that tax collector was, ex- was externally removed from the Pharisee, but not only was he standing noticeably distant from the Pharisee, his outward behavior also displayed noticeably his internal distance from God. And like I noted, we've all read this parable, or at least I know I have walked away with the general idea that don't be the Pharisee. (laughs) Don't be the self-righteous religious guy in the Jedi-looking robes who thinks he knows something because he's closer to God. And while I never want to be the Pharisee, and I certainly want to be like the tax collector, I don't want to be in one respect. I never, ever want to be at the point that I cannot approach my God or fix my eyes on heaven. You see, the reading this week from Jeremiah plays into that message of proximity and distance when it relates that the people's sins have separated them from God. And they beg him in verse 10, literally, do not leave us. And then we read in 2 Timothy, as Paul is going through a list of individuals, he mentions those who have wronged him and deserted him. And as I read all the readings this week, I could really kind of identify with that idea of proximity and distance and what was going on in the heart of the tax collector. You see, I know and I embrace that I am a sinner. Not that I know I was a sinner and Jesus saved me by taking on my sin through his selfless sacrifice and now I'm somehow above the messiness of human existence. Let me level set with you. I'm not perfect. Big surprise, I know this. (laughs) I'm married, and I've argued with my wife. Far less now, because she's trained me better. (laughs) My kids annoy me, and sometimes I don't pick the best words in response. I have parents, and I have in-laws. 
Someone at work is going to add more to my already overfilled plate than I need. And I'm going to feel some way about it. And sometimes I'm going to have a bad day and I'm going to express my frustration in a way that may be incongruent with my faith. And there are sometimes, just sometimes, I have not always leaned into God and let him guide my path. I have failed big and I failed hard. Sometimes I have let emotions be my decision maker. And not to rabbit trail, but that's probably not the right move to make. But there I am, just like the tax collector, feeling this tremendous gulf between my God and myself, my father and his child. And I'm submerged in shame or guilt or regret or frustration. But it's in those moments, those very moments, that I reorient myself to the reality that my God walks with me through the muck and mire of human life. Our God is not aloof. He's not sitting in the heavens with angel babies playing harps on clouds. He's not Zeus on Olympus. He's not Amun-Ra traversing the skies in a celestial barge. Our God is imminently interested, intensely involved, and inexplicably invested in us. He is present with us even in the moments we fail. Our God is a God of mercy, and we get to live into that reality each week when we get a reminder. We pray, we believe in a Lord whose character is always to have mercy. Our God loves us. He loves us enough to have someone stand in our places and receive what we should have rightfully received years ago. And our Savior stands with open arms, beckoning us to come and walk with him. And just because I know I'm jacked up, I don't have to let my failures or my weaknesses or my mistakes define me. What I did 20 years, 20 hours, 20 minutes, or 20 seconds ago does not define who I am nor my proximity or distance to God. I don't have to live in those feelings or feel somehow separated from God or from his people or separated from his grace or separated ever from his mercy. Jesus came for all of us, not the best of us, or the most righteous of us, or the most privileged of us, or the most educated of us. He came for the male, the female, the Jew, the Greek, the free, and those in bondage. He came that we might have life and have it more fully. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, and that message was meant to spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In his flesh, the wall of separation has fallen, and all can come close to the Father through the name of the Son. So this week, as I read that parable, I prayed to God that I may never trust in my own righteousness, my own sense of holiness or assurance to separate myself from others. But I also pray that I may never let a wall arise in my heart or life that brings distance from him to me. Because like the psalmist says, My soul has a desire and a longing to enter into the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh rejoice in the living God. Amen.